Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. We are currently in stage two of our COVID-19 response where the church building is open for you to join us in person for worship. However, we will continue to broadcast the service live at 10 a.m. each week. Now, here's this week's message. Well, good morning. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Did everybody have a good week? Yes, okay, so I had a, I had a pretty great week. Um, well, this week, my kids just really started looking up to me, and this has nothing to do with my sermon. I just haven't seen y'all in a while, so I figured we'd just chat, okay? But my kids started looking up to me, and you know, they're at those ages where you're like, Brian, you better just enjoy it, but I think it's gonna happen the whole time, because listen, here's what happened. My kids found out I make awesome paper airplanes. You laugh, but they just think I'm the coolest person in the world because I make good paper airplanes. My wife, not so much. So they found out daddy's way better, isn't that right? She doesn't agree, but they found out that daddy can make great paper airplanes. And why this is important is because all of those teachers who said I was wasting my time in school, I am now a good father because of those skills and I still have not used algebra. So what this means, I've been keeping track, I have been right 111 times and my teachers have been right zero so far, okay? That's where I'm at. Well, again, it has nothing to do with my sermon. We'll move on. Today, we're continuing our series, The Red and the Blue, where we're talking about politics. And I know it's probably your favorite topic to talk about, something you think about, something well, that you just can't help but hear about right now. And normally, we don't talk about politics in church, but when something or something big or something's happening in the world and it directly intersects with the teachings of Jesus, I feel it's my duty for us to talk about it, for us to look at what the Bible says about these things, and so that's why we're dealing with it. And today, of course, in the political climate that we're facing, plenty directly intersects with the teachings of Jesus. Because today, we're going to talk all about unity. That's our topic today, and our application is that we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And if you didn't grab one of those elements when you came in, that's okay, because remember, we're going to pause, we're going to do some praying, and, and during that time, if you need to go to one of the tables or one of the doors where those things are, you can grab one during those times. But we know that politics having a way of dividing our country and potentially even our churches if we're not careful. And so today our message is going to be about unity. And so it's, it's much bigger than politics, but it's going to include those things as well. And maybe you didn't know the importance of unity. I don't, I don't know your life experience and I don't know what you grew up with. You may have grew up in one of those churches that all they did was fight and all they did was complain. And so you may think that, hey, being in a Baptist church means all you do is argue and all you do is in fight. And that, that's just part of it. No one's laughing. So you almost grew up in those churches. Okay, I know your experiences now. But some of you may just think, hey, in churches, that's what you do. You, you, you just, you fight. That's normal. Or maybe your experience of, of leadership and people coming together is the government model where everybody's more concerned with winning and losing. So unity is something people talk about, but we, we know it's really not possible. Or maybe for you, when you hear unity, you, you think of like dictator type leadership. You had that boss that was really forceful. And so when people say things like unity, what they're really trying to gain, you think is control. You're really not allowed to have an original thought, but, but see, that's not the Bible's definition of unity at all. And in fact, instead of us learning from maybe the government or maybe businesses or our previous experiences about unity, I think the church should be leading the forefront in this. 
And what I mean is I think these other organizations, whether it's your business or their government or any other model, I think they should be looking towards the church wondering, how in the world do they get along so well? How do they accomplish so much? You see, for me, when I think of unity, it I think of a church and I think of what could be and what should be. You see that first song they sung this morning, that House of Miracles, that's that song I was talking about last week that just really spoke to my soul because it invokes my imagination of what could be and should be in the local church. And I don't know about you, but, but I love the local church. And when I think that the local church is a house of praise or a house of worship, a place that people gather together when they sing, demons tremble. Y'all got good imaginations? Have y'all thought about what it looks like when a demon trembles? I, I'm interested, right? I'm going to start thinking about that. But, but that's what this is, where people come alive in Jesus. This is the place where the gospel is proclaimed. And what it means to come alive in Jesus, right, is to, to be born again. This is the place where, where the message, the gospel is proclaimed to where people go from being dead to alive in Jesus Christ. Is that not fascinating and amazing? It should be. This is the place where if you're just bored or tired or apathetic in your faith, this is the place that should stir your emotions to where you come alive in Jesus, where healings happen in his name, where we proclaim his name. Anybody else get goosebumps for that? We're going to sing that song again, okay? We're going to sing it every week till you get goosebumps from thinking about the amazingness of the local church. And, and when I think of unity, I think of how the early church would come together and share their things and how people were willing to die on a cross for the sake of the gospel. Would you be willing to be nailed to a cross for Jesus? I think of unity. I think of, oh my goodness, the local church. And I think of how some churches are thriving in our country and how churches go from, from just starting to tens of thousands of people in just a couple of years. You say, well, Brian, that's because, I promise you it's because of unity. Were people coming together under the lordship of Jesus Christ and through the power of his Holy Spirit. I mean, people are raised from dead to alive. You're telling me churches can't grow? I mean, it's, it's unity. It's people coming together. In fact, here's my thesis for this morning. I boldly say that organizationally mean the togetherness of our local church. I will say that unity is the most important element of a local church. Look what Paul says about it. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to learn about the Lord's Supper and unity all at the same time today. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Is that positive? No. Paul's like, I don't have any praise for you. They're being gentle of how they're translating this, right? He has no praise for you. For in your meetings do more harm than good. You ever been to a church business meeting that did more harm than good? You're like, Paul is speaking to my church I grew up in. How about that? Look, he says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Division. Paul says, I have no praise for how you're behaving because of division. You see, a lot of people, they think, well, Brian, no, no, unity is uniformity, and, and we got to get the record straight. Uniformity and unity are not the same thing. Uniformity, think uniform, right? A company gives you a uniform so everybody looks the same. That's not what unity is. Unity is very different because the Bible never tells us to look the same. In fact, the Bible says from all different cultures, all different languages, you should gather together. That's not uniformity. Unity is when we're gathering together on a common thing. 
where you come from different backgrounds and you're gathering together around a common purpose. Look what Jesus says. Before the cross, Jesus met with his disciples, and we have in John 17 what's called the Lord's Prayer. You have the disciples' prayer where he teaches them how to pray. John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer of how we can think of that. Because Jesus prays to the Father about the Father being glorified by what he's about to go through, and that's the cross. He prays for his disciples that he's going to leave the apostles and what they do. And then he prays for all believers everywhere. Look at this. John 17, verse 20 says this. He's saying to the Father, he says, this is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, right? You follow me? That's you and me. Okay, message. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, it's kind of repetitive, gets caught up in words, but here you go. That they may be brought to complete, what is that? So Jesus wants us to be brought into complete unity. So when we hear the idea that unity is not a thing of God, you need to say, no, 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 not according to whom? All right, who's he quoting? Jesus, right, 85% of the church, I've told you that before, 85% of the time in church say Jesus, it's probably the answer, okay? Jesus says that we may be brought into complete unity, then what happens? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What's Jesus' evangelism plan? Unity. How do we show the world that God loves them? Oh, when we're nice. When we don't say that sin is sin. When, when we just accept people out there. Jesus, no, the world will know that I love them, that I have loved them even as you have loved me when we're brought into complete what? The evangelism plan for the church is unity. That's his plan. We can have as many harvest festivals or trunk or treats or as many outreaches as we possibly want, but if we're not united, it's pointless. Got heavy pretty fast, didn't it? Yeah, unity is that important. A divided church will not grow. And it's pretty simple. Why? Think about it. Listen, the world is used to wars. Wars and fighting have been going on as long as time has been present. People are used to being stabbed in the back at work. People are used to people saying bad things about them to get ahead. People are used to chaos. People are used to division. People are just used to all this fighting and this bickering at the expense of other people. People are used to that. But you don't want to come to God's house and experience that. So the way we show that the world that we're different, the way that we show that Jesus Christ is alive and well, the way we show that the gospel is true is by our what? By our unity. That's pretty important, isn't it? Like this is a big, big deal. We must be united around Jesus. We don't strive to be for uniformity. We don't strive to look the same and talk the same and, and all that. No, but we strive to be united around Jesus Christ. Remember, the church was his idea. This gathering wasn't something we came up with. It was something that he told us to do, which means we get our marching orders from him. So there are many things in the church we, we may not agree about, but there are some things in the church we absolutely must agree about. And here are those things. We have one purpose, to bring glory to God in all that we do. 
There's no negotiating in that. We have one mission. That's to make disciples. Brian, what's the local church for to make disciples? Yeah, no, no, but no, no. We are here to help people grow in their faith. And then we help them grow in their faith and so on and so on. That's, what, that's why the church exists, to make disciples. One message, the message is the gospel, that King Jesus has come, died on the cross for your and I sin. He rose again to provide a new way for you and I connect with the Father. Isn't that a great message? That's a whole lot better than everybody else is talking about on the news, isn't it? Yeah, the gospel is a pretty powerful and amazing thing. So there's one message and there's one command to love. To love God and love others. You're like, oh, I love that part. No, 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 but here's the problem. We learn love from Hollywood, right? How many people have learned what a relationship should look like from Hollywood? And then you got married. What happened? It didn't look the same. Something happened there. All right, so we have this idea of love because of our parents and because of our culture and because of the books and because of Hollywood. So we think we know what love is, but there's another thing we have to agree on, and that's one authority, and that's the Bible. Because the Bible then teaches us what love is. Not Hollywood, right? Not Nicholas Sparks, not all these other novels that you read. We're going we're gonna to pretend you don't, but I know you do. We're not going to let them teach us about love. We're going to let the Bible teach us about love. And when we were ground, this is what we agree about. This is what we have unity around these things. And as we strive for unity, unfortunately, look what Paul says next. Some aren't going to be on board. Look what he says. Verse 17. We already read this, but he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. We heard that. For your meetings do more harm than good in the first place. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Then he says this, it's going to catch you off guard, caught me off guard. He says, no doubt there has to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Wait, hold on, Paul. Don't be divided is what you pretty much say here. It would have been a little bit simple if he just said that, but he didn't. He, you know, draws it out some. He's a little long-winded. He's a preacher. So he says, no praise for you because you're divided. But then he says, well, to some extent, there's going to be. Well, why, Paul? Because we're different. No, 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 to show who has God's approval. Like, wait a minute, Paul. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Because the only other place in the Bible that, God, that Paul uses this word differences, it's also trading landed factions. It's only used twice. The only other time he uses it in Galatians 5.20, where he lists out the sinful works of people in, in contrast to the works of the Spirit. So this is not like, oh, well, we wear different clothes. No, no, this is sin. This is factions. This is divisions. So he's saying that there's going to be some of these so then we can see who has God's approval. It's a sinful thing. And Paul's not naive. He says, when, as you strive for unity, there are going to be people who try to divide. You say, well, Brian, that's not nice. It isn't nice, but that's real life, isn't it? That, that's what you love about the Bible. This isn't fun. This is like a, a, you'd have like something stuck in your throat. Like, Paul, you want us to come together. Or we want that everything's going to be perfect. He's like, no, unfortunately, it's not. Unfortunately, some are going to try to divide. But in that division, you will see who has God's approval, meaning you're going to be able to, ta- be able to tell through those divisions who is seeking the Lord, who is seeking the gospel versus those who are in it for themselves. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Thinking that would happen in the church. But see, a common misunderstanding today is that we are to be unified at the expense of truth. It's a very common misunderstanding. We think, well, if we don't talk about it, see, I'm new to the South, but I'm learning. This is pretty popular down here, right? 
If we don't talk about it, then it doesn't exist. That's not true. It still exists. You're just not talking about it. So we think, well, if we don't talk about it, everything's going to go perfect. Paul's like, no. One scholar says this. He says, unity and truth, I think I have it up here for you. Unity and truth should be two sides of the same proverbial coin. Unity overcomes linguistic, cultural, and geographic barriers, barriers when believers confess and uphold the truth of Scripture. Meaning I can be from the north, you can be from the south, and we can come together because of the truth of Scripture. But then he says, conversely, unity and harmony should never be achieved at the expense of truth. Meaning truth will divide. Remember Jesus said that I've come to bring a sword, I've come to bring division. Like he's very clear about it. The gospel will divide, even in the church. And it's uncomfortable, but Paul says, hey, factions will broke out to show you who truly belongs to God. I mean, Judas walked away, didn't he? But cultural issues, cultural issues must not divide. And that's what's going on here. Look at verse 20. He says, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, Although they were coming together and saying it was the Lord's Supper, he said, no, it's not. He said, for when you were eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another person gets drunk. I love when people keep telling me that they just used grape juice back then. <laughs> Trying to figure out how they're overindulging in grape juice and getting drunk. Yeah, just, just a thought, just to show you a little Bible. So when the early church got together to worship, they would have what's called love feasts. Similar how, remember when Jesus installed the Lord's Supper, they were actually at a meal. And so the church did that. They would come together and actually share a meal. They would have worship. They would eat. Think of potluck, right? Y'all have ever had a potluck? Y'all aren't paying attention. I'll start over. Y'all ever had a potluck? Yes, we're at a Baptist church. Of course we have. We've had potlucks. All right, so they would come together to have a meal. However, they wouldn't have a potluck for everybody. They would bring a meal for themselves. And they weren't doing that of rude. It's kind of like I brought my own picnic basket. You bring your own picnic basket. And we're going to all come together in the fellowship hall. And we're going to eat. But we're really not going to share. And so what would happen is the rich people would have what? They'd have shrimp and crabs and lobster the guy who doesn't have much, he's over here eating his little peanut butter sandwich. And what it's highlighting is how some have more than others. And when you come to a place and people are being extravagant and you can't afford it, how does that make you feel? Well, when you come to a place and everybody's dressed nice, have you ever been underdressed? How does it make you feel? They're not meaning to make you feel bad, but you feel bad because you can't afford what they have. It just makes something inside of you. That's what's going on here is the ones who had a lot were being extravagant. Oh, I'm bringing my best to the Lord. And the people who couldn't afford it, they were feeling bad. They were feeling left out. And I don't think they did this on purpose. I just think that rich people back then, well, they're used to having their servants sit around while they ate. They're used to people being around them hungry. So they're just going to church. They're like, yeah, I mean, you don't have what I have. It's all right. Oh. Just living life, this is normal, this is how we do things. But look what Paul says, verse 22. He says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church? Do you despise the bride of Christ? Do you despise what Christ died for by humiliating those who have nothing? 
What should I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. Why should we not get on people how they dress at church? Why should we be careful about what we impose on people? Because not everybody can afford that nice suit you have. Not everybody wants to go in debt over it. Why do we be careful about how we judge people? We don't want to humiliate people just because we can have something and they can't. This is why we don't do that, because he says they despise the church. Paul says, in your extravagance, you were just highlighting what people don't have. The church should be a place that makes, doesn't make people feel bad for not being on the same social and economical level. And I, strong, and I really believe, because Paul doesn't get on them for doing this on purpose, he's usually pretty forceful, I don't think they did it on purpose. I think they did it by accident. For instance, I have a pastor friend who was at a very, very wealthy church and the, the congregation was very well-to-do and, and they paid him moderately. I mean, it wasn't bad, but it was just in an area where the people had a ton of money and they treated him more like, well, like the hired help. And, and they didn't mean to, but when they would get together, they'd talk about their lake houses, they'd talk about their vacations, they'd talk about their boats and their RVs and they would just talk about all that they had and unknowingly, like this wasn't on purpose, unknowingly, he always fell out of place there. He said, man, I'm just like, I just don't fit in. I don't have all that stuff. I can't communicate with my own people. And he's the pastor. Imagine how the old blue collar worker down the street would feel. Just became a lie of the social elite were the only people that were there. Not because they didn't welcome the other people, but they didn't take into consideration the other people. That's what's going on here. It's not that they were hurting them on purpose. It's they didn't, they didn't consider that other people may not have what they have. They didn't consider their finances and their wealth. They didn't consider what they're saying is really hurting other people. I think it was an accident. And so the application to this, this isn't from the Lord. This is from Brian. The application is you should make sure the pastor has a boat. And you should make sure he has, he has vacation houses to keep up with them. I mean, that, again, that's not from the Lord. That is not from the Lord. I just think that's how we can take that. But anyways, moving on. They didn't mean to do that to him. But you see, Luke chapter 12 reminds us that those who have been given much, much is required. So if you are in a place of extravagance, if you do have a lot, if you are a little more wealthy, be careful because the responsibility is on you, not on them. The responsibility is on you to make sure that other people, you're not putting them down or making them feel bad for not being on your, your level because that's exactly what's happening here. So Paul says, when you're gathering together, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's your personal supper because it's about you and your wealth and your extravagance and all the things you like. Garland's comments, I think I have the quote up here. I do. He says, it's not the Lord's dinner because the Lord's dinner is intended to convey every participant that he or she is somebody precious to God. That's what we want to convey here at the church. Their problem is simple. There was division. There's separation. But I want to pause here to look at something, just what's going on, and look at Paul's vocabulary a little bit. Because what I find amazing about what we've looked at so far is how this passage can poke holes in our politics. You see, it starts by Paul condemning somebody's actions, pretty much because they're divided. They're not together. That's what he slams them for. And then he says, well, you know, not being divided is going to, being divided is going to happen over truth. So Paul's talking about words like unity. He's talking about words like, like truth. 
And I'll be honest, when I hear unity and truth, I can hear it from a certain political flavor. I'm not going to tell you which, but a certain political flavor. In fact, I can hear it from a certain church political flavor, words like unity and truth. And you're like, all right, yeah, Paul, get on them. But then he tells them and slams them for not providing for what? The poor. Which sounds like the other side. He's talking about justice issues and making sure people are taken care of. And if we sit back and think about it, we can see how both of these issues or all of these issues, people want to polarize today. When you say, well, we have these churches who stand for truth. We have these churches who stand for justice. We have these people who do this and, and we want to separate over these things. But Paul says, no, it's not either or, but it's both and. You see, these are gospel issues. We have to stop reading people through our political filters, through the stuff we bring to the table, because these can divide our churches. This can cause separation by accident. For instance, a couple years ago, I'm sorry, not a couple years, a while ago, when I was first getting into ministry, I ended up in Virginia. They have two Baptist denominational boards, and I ended up working with one over the other. It really doesn't matter why, but... I was a Liberty student. I was working with this particular uh, Virginia Baptist Mission Board. I went to them and met with them and, and started networking in them. And one of the people I met with, they said, well, why are you working with us? So what do you mean? They said, well, you're, you're a Liberty graduate. I said, yeah. They said, well, you're a conservative. Why are you working with us? I said, like, what, what do you mean? They're like, well, you're conservative. We're not as conservative as you. How come you're, they're like, how do we know we can trust you? And I was like, well, I I, this is, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, it blew me away. I mean, I was 27 years old. What are they talking about? Fast forward a bit. I ended up going to Southeastern Theological Seminary for my doctorate work. And in that, I was meeting with my professors and sitting down with one of them talking. And we started talking in the normal conversations. What church do you go to? Where do you pastor? And he said, well, why are you here? I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you're with the Virginia Baptists. I said, yeah, they're good people. He said, yeah, but they're liberal. And I said... What, what do you mean? They're like, well, that's the other side. How come you're here with us? And I, I'm not making this up. So I went to the Virginia Baptist, they said, well, you're too conservative. I went to Southeastern Baptist, they said, well, you're too liberal. And I said, what are, y'all, what are y'all doing? Neither one of them took the time to get to know me. Neither one of them asked me my beliefs, why I chose to go where I went. All they were doing was interpreting me through their filters. In fact, they were interpreting me through something that happened before I was born. And they thought I was a part of it. They wanted to drag me into it. And I was like, I don't, what are y'all talking about? And that's what I told them. I told both of them, you're interpreting me through your fights. You've stopped paying attention to the world. You're interpreting me through something that you think I'm saying, and I'm not just because I'm partnering or networking. We could do the same thing easily with politics. And I told him, I said, you want to know why I went to Liberty? I said, you want to know? Here's the big theological secret. It's the only Christian school I'd ever heard of. That's it. That's pretty theological, isn't it? I didn't grow up in this big Christian. That's the only one I ever heard of. I saw another guy went. I was like, I'll go there. I said, you want to know I partnered with Virginia Baptist? Because I met with both groups. One said, how can we help you? The other one started to tell me about how the other one was wrong. You know me well enough to know that one isn't who I want to hang out with. That was the big theological reason. One said, how can I help? I said, yeah, I want to work with them. 
But what they heard was all of their baggage and all of their junk, and this was pastors, seminary, denominational leaders filtering other pastors through their bias. Surely in church we can filter people through our bias to what we think they're saying or what we think we know or what we think the side they're on and so on and so on. In other words, they're being prejudiced. They already had their minds made up about me. And we can easily do the same thing to people in church. We can see what they're wearing and we can see where they're from and we can easily have our prejudice. In fact, did people in the South have any prejudice about the people from the North? No, not at all, right? Did the people in the North have any prejudice against the people of the South? I didn't know they had colleges in the South. Like I just found that out when I moved down here. I was like, I didn't know they did things like that down here. Like, you know, from the North. I'm just kidding. I knew you did. Because you have football, right? But it's the same with our politics. We can look for the differences. We can look for reasons not to get along. We can try to poke hold in people rather than looking at coming together. Things like holiness, truth, gospel, unity, authority, the Bible, taking care of the poor, standing up for injustice. These aren't red and blue issues. These are Bible gospel issues. And that's what brings us together. And my point is simple is we must make sure that we check our prejudice at the doors of the church building. We have to learn to let the Bible be our filter. We have to learn to instead of allowing political candidates or parties to be our filter, thinking that when somebody says something, oh, that means they must. No. Don't let spiritual issues become political issues. We listen to Jesus Christ first and foremost. So, Brian, that's impossible. I know, but then Paul reminds us why. Look at this. He tells us. He says, for I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. This I read every time we do communion, Right? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next verse. He says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And now we're looking at the verse in context. Why is it all about Jesus? Why are we eating it in Jesus' name? Why is it about him? Because the people there were thinking about whom when they took it? Themselves. My meal, my food, my church, my music, my dress, my traditions. Should we keep going? Paul said, no. When you come together... It's about the life-giving nature of Jesus, who Jesus took to give to you. Jesus took to give you life. Jesus took to give you grace. Jesus took on the punishment. He didn't take to fill his belly. That's what he's comparing it to. Versus me taking and eating, getting gorged or getting drunk or eating way too much. He's like, no, no. Jesus took in order to give you life. The starting point is that you and me, we are saved by the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And communion, the reason why Paul talks about this communion, reminds us about the others in the room. That it's not just about me, it's about Jesus. And all of my actions and filters should be based on him. Because when we divide or we have divisions or we have factions, it's about us, isn't it? About me. So I want you to think about when we do communion is this. Do you divide out of pride? Or do you bring unity for the sake of community? Because division's about pride, about me, myself, and I, isn't it? 
Do you divide out of pride about what you want, about what you think, or do we bring unity as a community? And I know this is rough, and I know this is tough, but do you know when we think about communion, that's the context in which Paul places taking communion, thinking about others, about how the body and the blood of Christ was done for others? It's a big deal. And before we brush over this and we roll our eyes and we get upset and we start justifying our behavior, look at this warning. It's a really big deal. Look at what he says now. He says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28 says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now pay attention. He's already talking about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. He says, what, do you bring shame or do you despise the church? Well, now he says, without discerning the body of Christ. What was the Corinthian sins? Well, they were prejudiced and didn't think about others. What is he telling you to discern and examine yourself about? Not just your walk with the Lord, but your otherness. How are you treating the other people in the church? Are you bringing division or are you bringing unity? That's what he tells us to examine ourselves about. That was their sin. You see, the Lord's Supper proclaims the life-giving nature of Jesus Christ. It proclaims that all people are valuable to God. However, if our actions and our attitude says something different, says that others aren't important or others aren't as valuable, we are then guilty. One scholar says this, I don't have it up here. It says, thus those who partake of the bread and cup of the Lord without properly thinking about what it means both personally and in relationship to the crucified Lord and in the context of fellow church members will have to answer to the Lord as judge for their actions. Those actions indirectly at least make one culpable for the death of the Lord. We don't have time to get into it, but what Paul says is we end up being on the other side. When we are showing, when we're hurting someone else in the church or we're bringing division, we end up being on the side that crucified Christ. We aren't acting like a believer. We aren't acting like somebody who has life-giving nature of Jesus, who, who gives for the sake of others. We are then crucifying Jesus. That is tough. That's rough. I, I promise you it's, we don't have time to look at it all, but, but because of their actions, they're bringing division. Probably not on purpose. That's the thing that catches me off guard. He doesn't call them out for doing it on purpose. He just calls them out for acting like they do out there and then bringing it in the church. And so we have to examine ourselves. Do we look at people differently for what they wear? I already know the answer to that one, by the way. Do we look at people for their haircut or how they vote or where they live or their family situation or their tattoos or their bumper stickers or anything else you can possibly think about? Do we bring prejudice in the church? Are we just happy to see that they're here? You know, do we smile when we see those young people going, man, when I was their age, my mama had to drag me, but they come before church. I know a lot of y'all talk about how your mom had to drag you. You know what that says, right? That says, it says you weren't a kid who liked coming to church, right? But then what about those kids who drive themselves to church? Do you look at them and go, whoo, look at them. Or you talk about their clothes and their dress and their music. Yeah, you know, I, I already know the answer to that. So do you divide out of pride, which is our thing, or do you bring unity for the sake of community? 
Do we bring unity for the sake of community? Here's what Paul says. He's continuing. He says, that's why. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What's fallen asleep here mean? It means dead. So you thought I was being harsh, and now you see how Paul said, here's the reality check. That is why m- many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Why, Paul? Because of how you're acting at church. No, I mean, that's, that's what it says. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be fondly condemned with the world. Causing division, neglecting the needs of others is a serious offense. Whether it's by accident, whether it's on purpose, Paul says, if you're more discerning, if you thought about how your actions were affecting others, but Paul didn't mean to, he said, it doesn't matter. Are you, are you discern more, examine your life, how you're acting, is it building people up, is it tearing them down? I tell you with my children that that's our simple thing. Are your words building up your brother and sister or is it tearing them down? If it's not building them up, guess what? They're wrong. Pretty simple. We can have the same filter. And I can't help but wonder, could it be? Could it be that the reason why many local churches are weak or sick or have shut their doors Could it be because of division? Could it be that the Lord said, "Mm mm-mm, I've had enough of that? Could it be? See, communion, what we're going to take today should be a reminder that we are united together by the body of Christ. There are many political beliefs, but rather than allowing them to divide, we want to come united under Jesus Christ. So today, as we celebrate We remind ourselves of the great love and the goodness of God. We can agree on Jesus Christ that we remember the self-giving, self-sacrificing nature of Jesus, the great grace. So before you take the elements, I ask you, are you personally serving the Lord in an unworthy manner, the examining yourself? But in this context specifically, are you allowing politics, prejudice, status, favoritism, any of that to divide the body of Christ? Are we bringing disunity or unity? We're going to have a minute of prayer and self-reflection. I'm sure we could all use it. I know I could during this. And remember, as we just talked about, the reason why we celebrate communion is to remember the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. And so let's just take a time to examine ourselves. I mean, church, we have been through a lot. We have pandemics. We have closures. We have opening. But I honestly believe that we can come together united for the best years this church has ever seen. I believe it because it happens all over our country, all over the world. When Christians come united under the purposes of Jesus Christ, remember, Remember Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not overcome. Will you examine yourself? Will you pray?
And as you pray and just think about it, if those of you need to grab the elements, please grab them now. hear our prayers. Father, we so, we thank you so much that we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Lord, and we, we know that's possible just because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That blood that was poured out for our sins and the sins of others. How do we think about your body that was broken for us? That was torn for us? You took on the wrath that we were deserved. So how dare we, Lord, then judge or harm or hurt your body or other people in here? And we ask for forgiveness for that. as we take this we remember that you gave so we could live Lord let us be life giving body of believers who encourage and inspire who help people grow in their faith that means we have to challenge them but oh Lord let us these petty differences that come up in churches all churches everywhere Lord let us be Let us be stronger than that. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for the way we do look at people, people who are different, people who talk different, that sound different, that wear different clothes. We a different generation, Lord. I can't understand the younger people now. I can't imagine how people feel that are a lot older than I am. I'd help us breathe life into people. Help us be spiritual parents and spiritual grandparents help us love Father we pray for our church we do ask for forgiveness of any of the times that we've allowed division or just other things to be in the way of your mission Lord I pray that you give us the clear vision for the future Lord to make disciples, to bring you glory, to share the gospel, to love others. As we grow in the knowledge of your word and living it out, Father, we thank you. 
God, we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for forgiving us.